0: We're going to start a little bit differently today. I want to play a little bit of of a game with you as we open up and talk about one of the most courageous people in the Bible. And the Bible is full of courageous people, but here we have a different type of a story. So as we begin today, I want to ask you to play a little game. Now, I'm not going to make you stand up as I would have done when I was a youth pastor, but I am going to ask you to do something very odd in a Baptist church. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Okay? Now, there's no need for any hoopering or hollering or amens. I mean, you can if you like, but it's not really appropriate for what I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask all of you about some courageous activities that maybe you have done in the past, or you want to do, or you've never done, maybe. Here's what I want to do. As I ask you these statements, I just want you to raise your hand if you've done this before. And I'm going to start it off really easy. Now, I want you to be honest, though. Okay? So, let's start off really easy. Courageous activities. I could climb up a 10-foot ladder and not get nervous. Raise your hand. It's very important to see some people do not raise their hand to that, and that's okay. I could ride shotgun in a race car and not scream. And not scream. Okay. I could ride a bull without fear. Wow, not many people that one, only a couple of children. <laughs> the adults must have some experience here and know better. Alright, I could skydive without a problem. Alright, I'm going to be calling you guys because I want to go skydiving sometime. I could bungee jump and not be terrified. I could wiggle through a tiny tunnel and not feel claustrophobic. Mr. Doug, you should be raising your hand on that one because you might have to do that in the Tough Mudder here in a few weeks. With me, I might add. (laughs) That's scary. I could lay down in a giant tub of insects and not get freaked out. Come on, really? Even if it's a giant tub of spiders? Wow, you you guys are crazy. You guys are courageous. You see, we're all scared of different things. We're all scared of something some of us are brave some of us are not so much Now, some of us are afraid of certain things that others might think it's really easy and we shouldn't be afraid of i'm afraid of lying down in a tub full of insects but at the same time i wouldn't be afraid of saying let's go skydiving today i would have fun with that but we're all a little bit different for instance i want to talk about roller coasters My wife has to remind me all the time when we go to theme parks, and I saw one of my daughters even cringing as I mentioned the word roller coasters, that roller coasters are not so easy for everybody. You see, when it comes to me, roller coasters do not affect me. I've been to Cedar Point and Kings Island, and I've been to Walt Disney World and Busch Gardens. I've been to SeaWorld and Universal Studios. I've been to all these theme parks, and I've ridden some of the most, Some of the fastest roller coasters in the United States. I've rode some of the craziest with the most loops and spins. And I can just sit there and not even break a smile. Other people, they're like screaming, yeah, or ah. (laughs) But me, I could just sit there. And I try and have fun with it, I do. But the ones which really make me have fun are the ones that are like gravity defying. That you're levitating off your seat for half of the ride. Those are the fun ones for me. And I want to push my kids and just say, just do it once, you'll love it. Because you think that, oh, they're just afraid of the idea, but they'll love it. But some people are not good with certain things that we are good with, and that's okay. But we do need to talk about courage. And that's where we're at today. Today we're talking about a woman named Esther. And we're back in the Old Testament again as we talk about Esther. Now a little bit of background here. If you're reading the Bible in chronological order, Esther would be one of the last things you read. Only parts of Ezra and parts of Nehemiah happen after the event. Excuse me, after the events of Esther. The setting is Persia, which would be modern-day Iran in the Middle East. And that is where the Jewish nation is or has been in captivity. Now, we're introduced to a couple of Jewish people here very early in the book. The names are Mordecai, And Esther, But Esther has another name as well. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. Esther is Mordecai's blood cousin. And Esther's family has passed away. And Mordecai has taken her on as his daughter. And has raised her up. And also gives her a lot of life lessons. Not only as she was growing up, but now in the story. Some of them good. Some of them not so good. Some of them lead her to take her own steps of courage. That maybe she wouldn't have done on her own. And we all need that push sometimes, you know? Sometimes it is like that roller coaster experience, and we need to push them and say, you know what? There's no such time as now. There's such a time as this. And we need to push them and say, you need to do this. But roller coasters aren't exactly what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is when we need to do what God's calling us to do. And sometimes that's hard because we know it could lead to our own persecution, our own pain. Or maybe even our own embarrassment as we think, well, we don't know God's word good enough. Or I don't know if I'll know what to say if I go up to that person and talk to them. But we need to depend on God's plan. We need to depend that God's going to give us what we need and his will is going to be done. Here's another interesting thing about the book of Esther. The name of God does not appear in the book of Esther. It makes it the only book of the Bible in which God is not expressly mentioned Some say that this could be because of the context of the book. You see, God's people had been freed, but some of them were living outside of God's will. God had instructed them to go back to Israel from Babylon, but many of them did not go back. Many of them chose to put down their own roots and stay where they're at now that they have this newfound freedom and they're not in bondage anymore. But they chose to stay. In a way, they chose to stay and live the comfortable life. Why go back to Israel when I'm already here? And the bondage thing, "Ah, that's gone now. We don't need to worry about that. Or do we? I think again in Esther, we see that it's still in their back of their mind what had happened. But some of them had stayed back in Persia. They chose to stay where life had now become more comfortable for, for them. And it was less likely... Um, Not less likely, but they didn't need as much courage to take a big journey at this point. They could just stay where they were. Here's something else that we see with God not being mentioned specifically in this book. Is we don't read of any type of worship to God either. We're not reading about them making sacrifices to their Lord. We're not reading of them reading God's law, God's book, God's word, or teaching And in some ways, we're not reading of them practicing God's law either. In fact, we'll get into that more later too. But they're almost hiding their faith and who they are. They're not making God part of their new life. But they still themselves are his people. And they view themselves as his people. That's somewhat like us as well, isn't it? Esther is a book which speaks to all of us. As we all see ourselves as part of God's people, God's kingdom... But we're not always worshiping him as we should. We're not always doing as he commands. And we're not always worshiping him as he would desire. This doesn't mean that God does not have a purpose in this book, though. You see, this book of Esther was debated many times over the past and over history as to whether it should even be included in the Old Testament canon in the Bible. Because they think, well, God's not mentioned it in it. Maybe this isn't really truly an inspired word. But I believe that throughout the entire book, you can see that God has a purpose in this. And he's speaking to us. He's speaking to people who are not following him like he should. And it shows his providence. It shows how God is still in control of everything that's going on in his creation. Whether his name is mentioned or not. Whether we're following him as we should or not. God can still turn a situation around to do his will, his plan. You can see his fingerprints throughout the entire book, despite his name not being mentioned. Now, they do use another name. I believe it's in chapter 7, for God. But that's the only specific reference to him. Now, the book of Esther has 10 chapters. So we're going to do things a little bit differently today. I hope you can bear with me. But we're going to try and summarize the story today. This is hard for me because I like to pick one specific passage, six verses, ten verses, or at least one chapter to be able to dissect and focus on. But today we have this story. And it's so hard to pick just one part of the story because then you don't know what happened before it. You don't know what happened after it. You don't know what happened in the middle. We kind of need to work from the beginning of chapter one. But I do encourage you, when you get home today, get out your Bible. You already have it out. Put, a, put your bulletin there at Esther chapter 1. Read the story. The whole story of Esther. And see what God is telling us in this book. What he did in this time. Now, there's this really fun thing called Veggie Tales. And I know they have a really fun story of Esther. But I'm not saying to get out your Veggie Tales movie. I'm saying get out your Bible. Read the story. Now, if you want to get out... Veggie tales afterwards, that's great. There's some really funny parts in that, especially where they throw the queen out of the palace. But get out your Bible. There's nothing that, that is better than the Bible. We can watch any movie. There's a new movie that came out this past week on video on Samson and his life. Well, you can watch that movie, and I haven't seen it yet. But I would say, oh, it's a great movie. It's from the Bible. Not always true. You need to get the Bible out first. But enough about that. Like most of Old Testament books and Old Testament heroes, there's a lot of life application we can get from the book of Esther. We're going to talk about that a lot today, but it mainly comes down to courageous faith. And as you can see on this slide, God rewards a courageous servant with victory and with life. Now, I really think that speaks to Esther's story, but it also speaks to your life. If you are a courageous servant... You're doing life how he's commanding you to. You're being a servant of his, and you're courageous in doing so. He, real, he will reward you with victory in life. Now, maybe you'll be persecuted. Maybe you'll be killed. Maybe things won't happen as they did in the life of Esther. But if you're a courageous servant of God and you believe in him as Lord and Savior, he'll still reward you with victory over death and life with him. So let's look to chapter 1 just briefly. I'm going to try and summarize this a little bit because, again, I can't speak every word. We're going to do a lot of reading today, but I'm also going to try and do a lot of summarizing. In chapter 1, it's where we learn of a great empire, 127 provinces stretching from Africa to India, and a great king, King Xerxes, or called Hazarius in some translations. There's a lot of really long Old Testament names in this as well. I'll try and get them all correct. But, I'm sure you've been there before where I am. It's hard to get all these Old Testament names correct and remember them too. But there's importance in a name as we've said. Who is holding? King Azarius, Xerxes, is holding a 180-day party for his subordinates. After that, he holds a party for all of his people for seven days. This is what we read in verses 1 through 5. Now here we're seeing a very rich man. A very powerful man. Basically, he's in charge of most of the world at this time as he's in charge of Persia. What this man wants, he gets. Now, the rest of chapter 1 is talking about his queen, Vashti. You see, he's been partying. And it's coming to the end of his party and he sends his servants, Go and get my wife so that I might show her off and show how beautiful she is. Queen Vashti angers the king because... She denies his request. She tells the servants to tell him, I'm not coming. Now the king thinks this is not a good thing. He talks to his princes. He talks to his his guides. And he says, what might I do with her? Queen Vashti angers the king. And so she's kicked out of his presence forever. Her queenship, her crown is taken away. Because they're afraid of what this might do to the kingdom. If other women of the kingdom see that the queen herself can deny the king and deny his, her husband, well, what's that saying to our wives? Are, are our wives going to start disobeying us and denying what we tell them to do? They're afraid of their wives sticking up for themselves. I might add, if you read this, I think what the queen was sticking up for probably was not a bad thing. She didn't want to be shown off in front of the king's guest at a party. where well, he's probably drunken, and all of his friends, all of the partygoers, are probably drunken and his intent might not have been so good. I'll let you read for yourself more into that, but this creates a need for replacement of sorts and for God's plan to start. As as the king's going to look to replace Queen Vashti. Chapter 2 begins with a type of a contest to determine who that person will be. But let me read from Esther chapter 2 verses 5 to 9. We read this now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jar, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconi, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. These can make tongue twisters, I'm sorry. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict, edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had, a char- who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Here we meet Esther. Esther. I'm going to stop here for just a moment. A Jewish girl being raised by her cousin Mordecai because she has no parents. Now let's take note to an important um, note. An interesting note here is in relation to Esther's other name. Hadassah, which means of good appearance in Hebrew. I also read that it also means star. And as you look up to the stars, you're kind of mesmerized by how amazing of a creation they are. And that's what we see in Esther. We see that she was, she's, she's. uh, we're told that she's beautiful. But not just beautiful, she is young, she's a virgin, she has no mother and no father. Now, if you're listening to some people, I've heard them expand a lot on the beauty of Esther. Tony Evans is one. Tony Evans is a fun preacher to listen to. And he explains Esther is this. He says that Esther isn't said to just be pretty. She is said to be beautiful. And he says, in my neck of the woods where I came, come from, now he's an African-American man. I love listening to how he talks. And he says, she is fine. He says, you got to really pronunciate that I and let it go. And he says, she was fine. <laughs> I can't really say it how, how he does, but you can get the picture We're told she is beautiful. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. But what happens to to her next is we see she's thrown into this race, to this competition in sorts, to find out who is going to be the next queen that sits beside the king. And we see immediately... That, that she finds favor in this house. And she's given great things. The young woman pleased him and won his favor. He quickly provided her with her cosmetics, her portion of food, and with seven chosen women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Something stood out about this woman. With her beauty with her personality, with her background, with her confidence. Which is funny because we don't even know, we're not even told if this was forced upon her or if it was voluntarily done. We don't know if she sees this this contest for who's going to be the new queen and says, Pick me, pick me. I want to be in the modeling competition. I want to be in this show. Or if Mordecai just pushes her into it because he knows that it's a royal edict to command. May all these beautiful... Virgins, come before the king and be seen. She's given a new home, cosmetics, food, the highest place among the women of the capital. But what do you think it was like for Esther to make this huge change? How would she have felt taken from her friends, taken from her from the little family she had, taken from the life that she had begun to know? Even though she's placed in a harem and with all the belongings, possessions she would like, it's still a lot of change. And all for once, and she might have been forced into it. Esther chapter 2, verse 10 says this Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Remember, the Jews had been held captive. Now they're free, and yet Mordecai is instructing this daughter figure of his, Esther, to keep this a secret. Do not let anybody know of your beliefs. Don't let anybody know that you're a Jew. Why would they have done this? They're tolerated now. But I think that some part of them still afraid that if they make it too well known who they are, well, the people of Persia could think there could be an upbringing, an uprising, a fight. Or maybe they're afraid that if they let them know who they are and who they worship, that they're going to be looked down upon. They're not going to have the same freedoms sure some of you feel that way in your own life. You may have freedom, but you feel like, oh, the wealthy have so much more than I do. Or the people with this or that, or the perfect job. There's always somebody else we look to and think that they have it better, and maybe we should just act like we know what we're doing and deny who we really are. But we need to have confidence in who we are and the God we serve. God was working behind the scenes already to put Esther where she needed to be To later save his people through her courageous faith. And through one statement, one phrase that would shake her world. For such a time as this. For such a time as this. The rest of the chapter 2 talks about Esther being selected as queen. It also discusses a time when Mordecai overhears a plot to kill the king. Which he reports to Esther who then warns the king. But she was afraid to do so at first. But she brought up the courage to do it anyways. Now, we're going to need to remember this fact later, but we're going on to chapter 3. Again, I'm trying to summarize the whole book, but we're going to wrap it up really well, and we're going to talk about courageous points of faith that we can use in our own life. Esther 3 is where the plot really starts to thicken. You see, we meet a man named Haman, and he is put in charge by King Xerxes over all of his princes. And given certain powers, certain freedoms, certain rights, he becomes sort of his right-hand man. The king declared that people were to bow down and pay him homage. He's kind of like what Han Solo would be to Luke. Depending on who you like better, I guess. What Robin would be to Batman. In this case, Haman was the king's right-hand man. And he was sent out to do his will, his bidding, and enforce his, his laws. Esther chapter 3, verse 2 of 15 says this, but let me read this to you first. I believe that God rewards his servants. Now, the main point for today is this. God rewards a courageous servant with victory in life. Because that's the overall idea we see by the time we get done with Esther. But there's many different ways that God rewards his servants. And as we see this chapter in this book, we see that they're rewarded with protection. So first, the courageous servants of God are rewarded with protection. As we see that the queen, Esther, is taken into this harem. For 12 months, she's living away from her family. Mordecai visits her, but he's not with her. She's away from her comfort zone and all that she knows. And yet God protects her. And God continues to protect her throughout the entire book. We also see this in our own life. God protects us. But that's seen in many different ways. We also see victory through provision. God provides her with everything she needs to live and more. We see that God provides courageous servants with victory through promotion. As we see that Mordecai in the end is promoted. And Esther is promoted, very honest, queen. Through doing as God's plan was. We also see victory through life. But let's read on. Chapter 3. Verse 2 to 15. And this is where we we start to really see the message come out. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. They're going and telling on him. They're trying to get him in trouble. They're trying to see if he gets away with not bowing to him. Because why should we have to bow if he doesn't have to bow? And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. How dare this man not bow down to me, the king's servant, and to disobey this king's law. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Azarias. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of king Asarius, they cast pur... That is, they cast lots before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Azarias, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate it, them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamedasa, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month. And an edict, a command, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the people, to every province, its own script, its own language, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Azarias and sealed with the king's signet ring. This was official. Though putting a law into place, letters were sent by carriers to all the king's prophets, provinces with instructions. Here's the important instruction here. To destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews. All Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the people to be ready that day. The curators went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Let's talk about this a little bit. Discuss it a little bit. That's a lot to take in. I understand that. So we, here we have this man, Mordecai. Another servant in, in the kingdom of the king of Xerxes. And he knows the command. He knows what he's told to do is to bow down to Mordecai. But he doesn't do it. And now we see the consequences. Mordecai is standing up for what he believes is right, or he's stubborn. One of the two things. Mordecai's reasoning is that he he will worship his Lord God and him only. I bow down to no other person. Now, I also think he probably just did not like this Haman guy. He did not want to bow down to him. This is one of the first instances we see in this book of Mordecai standing up for his beliefs, though. And he starts to get a right A right image of what he should be doing for God. And it will start working in the life of Esther as well. We see, because of this this small act, Haman decides to kill all the Jews. He's got the king wrapped around his finger. And he says, King, Asarius, he lies. He says, look at these people. They do what they like. They're practicing their own rituals, their own customs, their own laws. They're not listening to the laws of Persia. We should destroy them all. Because this one man is offended about Mordecai not bowing before him. Imagine in your own life, you don't like this one person. So when you see him, you turn away and you walk the other way. You don't shake his hand when you see him as maybe you should. Good morning. It's so nice to see you, to be kind and show kindly gestures. Instead, you turn away and you ignore Who he is. And now you think of that man killing, issuing a decree that anybody who's related to this man, I issue a decree to kill them all. That's what's happening here. They are going to kill all the Jews. Haman is filled with anger, in drastic anger. Haman gets to the king and he has him approve it. But Queen Esther hears of the plan now. And in chapter 4, 1 through 16, we see things start to change. This is where we start seeing that the queen is challenged by Mordecai. Let's read this. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate closed in sackcloth. This isn't the first time we've seen this. As we read in the book of Jonah, and he went into Nineveh, we see that the king there also put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. And it's a way of mourning. They're crying out because they're afraid for their lives. And not just Mordecai. But this this decree, this edict, this law was put into place for all of the provinces of Persia. All that the king commanded and all these people were fearing their life now. So he goes to the gate. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews. With fasting and weeping and lament, lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Verse 4 of chapter 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to close Mordecai so he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. I think... Esther, Queen Esther, is trying to get comfortable being in this position. And she sees her father figure Mordecai down there in, in sackcloth and ashes and mourning. And she should know what's going on. She should know at least the customs that he's mourning and, and not try and get him to change. But she's saying, Oh no, look at Mordecai. I need to give him better clothes. This doesn't look good at all. This, this isn't good for him. Then Esther called for Hesach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hesach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And here's the dialogue we get. Esther doesn't go to him herself. She sends a servant to talk to him and find out, what's going on, Mordecai? The queen Esther is wondering, and I need to give her a report. Mordecai told him all that happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasures for the destruction of Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for the destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain to her what is going on. And pay attention to next statement, is very strong. And command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of of his people. Mordecai is making a command of the queen. How would that go along with the servant? But the servant carries his message on to the queen, went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hazach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman go to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death. So we're starting to see this courage starting to develop. The Queen Esther gets this message from Mordecai. Mordecai Mordecai's telling her, please, I plead with you. Go, go to the king and, and point, give him some sense, make some sense into this. Tell him what's going on. Plead our case and save your people. And the queen's telling her, Esther's telling him, I can't just go into king's presence. I'm only allowed to go into the king's presence if he asked for me to come in and she goes on to say I have not been called to come into the king for 30 days I might not be on his good side right now and if I go to see him I might be killed he might issue that I be, I be killed for going against the laws she knew the laws and she thinks that Mordecai doesn't know so she sends this instruction back to him but I, I really think Mordecai knew what was right He didn't care about the law. He knew that his people were suffering and his people were going to be killed. So Mordecai then tells Esther this. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. God's will will be done. God will save his people. But you and your father's house will perish... And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Mordecai. Esther listens to Mordecai. Those words somehow strike this this courage to come up from within her as she thinks, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Maybe this is the very reason that God led a, a regular... Person into the kingdom, a regular person to become queen. This beautiful person, God's going to use everything she has to save His people. Mordecai gives her a challenge, and she's now he's now telling her to do something very different with her life. Listen to this. Up until this point, Mordecai has been telling Esther, deny your faith. Don't tell anybody who you are. Don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. And now all of a sudden, Mordecai's changing his tone, changing what he's saying. And Mordecai's telling her, go out to the king. Let him know what's going on. Let him know that your queen, this beautiful person that's in front of you, is also a Jew. And we pray that God will have mercy on you and mercy on all of us and change this law. For such a time as this, God's going to use her. For such a time as this. You are placed in this very spot for this reason. This is a phrase we put all over greeting cards, all over churches, all over your life, your houses, in movies, and songs. For such a time as this. And we all look to our own lives. And what man may have meant for bad or to try to save their comfort life, God can use in his timing for his good. Up until this point, they're not living for God. But now they're ready to change their tone, to save themselves, but God will use it. We were all created for a purpose. We want to believe this, and we should, because God has a purpose in all of us, and he can turn your life around to accomplish his will. Deep down you know that there must be meaning to your life. We all want to be used for such a time as this. But will you be courageous, a courageous servant, when God asks you to stand up? And be courageous. Esther had beauty. And was selected to be put in a place of a queen. And to be used. And now we get to this point where Esther has a choice. To stand up and have courage. Or to keep on living the comfortable life. To not worry about being killed. But God had specifically placed Esther in a position of influence. History and personality. Her beauty was all used to make a difference. At such a time as this. What do you have that God wants to use? I want you to pray these words. You see, I think the difference with Esther's life is this. She probably wanted to pray for her own will. She wanted to pray, Lord, don't put me in this situation. But instead, I think she would have prayed something like this. Lord, what I have is yours. Use me how you desire. May your will be done over my own. May you be glorified. We need to pray this very same thing. We need to pray, God, whatever you've given me, use it to accomplish your will. Use it to glorify you. I am your servant, and I will be courageous because I can depend on you. Have you ever considered that God may have you in his kingdom on earth at this very moment for such a time as this? Everything that is either happening to you now or has happened to you in the past may be part of God's very purpose to use you at this time. How will you commit yourself to this time to God? What does Esther commit to doing? Esther commits to be used for God. Esther commits herself to be used to save her people. And she says, I may die, but I'm going to do it anyways. Her response to him, to Mordecai, is this. Then Esther, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I am a young woman women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. That's another strong statement. If I perish, I perish. She's come to this courageous face of knowing that this is what she needs to do. God has placed her... ...in this position in such a time as this... ...to stand up and have courageous faith... ...for herself and for her people. She commits to risk her life to save God's people... ...her people. But she didn't do it without a plan. She tells Mordecai and all their people to fast... ...and pray for us, and we will do the same. I'm going to hold two dinners... two banquets, two parties... ...and then the first one, I'm going to get the king's favor... So much that the king says, you can have half my kingdom. But she says, no, I don't want half your kingdom. She says, come tomorrow to the next banquet. And he comes to the next banquet. But something important happens in between that. Esther's courage really begins to rise up. She puts risk in her life. We all put risk in her life. You're willing to take risk to lay in a tub full of insects... You're willing to take risks to jump out of a plane. You're willing to take risks to take a new job, to put your money into different things that may not be so dependable. But are you willing to take a risk for God and for His plan? Why not take a risk for God? This is what she does. She takes a risk. But in chapter 6, verse 1 to 2, we see that the king could not sleep. Verse 1 to 12. So, what do you do when you can't sleep? Maybe you Keep on pushing on and keep trying. Maybe you get a glass of milk, you get a snack. Maybe toss and turn. Well, what the king did is this. He, He made a request that the recorder come to him and read the records to him. Now, maybe it's because he wanted to really see, I can't sleep. Now, this is a king. He's probably in the fluffiest, softest bed in the kingdom, right? And he can't sleep. That's pretty important. I think God caused him to not be able to sleep. God caused him. We don't know that. We can just think into this. But this is the king and he can't sleep. So he requests the records to come before him. And as they're being read, he sees that Mordecai is recorded as saving his life. And yet he's never been recognized for this. this. So the king calls to Haman. And he asks Haman, what should I do for this? What should I do to make sure this king, this, this Mordecai... ...is recognized. And here's Haman's very words. And Haman said to the king... ...for the man... ...excuse me... ...for the man whom the king delights to honor... ...let royal robes be brought... ...which the king has worn... ...and the horse that the king has ridden on... ...whose head a royal crown is set... ...and let the robes and the horse be handed over... ...to one of the king's most noble officials... Haman is thinking that the king is talking about him. What should I do to honor a servant of mine who stood up and does everything for me as he should? Haman is now doing, giving all these instructions because he wants this recon, recon, recognition. Proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man who the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. This is interesting that Mordecai still at the gate. He's still in mourning for his life. And yet he's sending Haman to dress him up in the king's robes and do all that Haman said. Haman's angry now and he says, I can't believe this. I'm the one that should be rewarded. And he goes home after this and kind of has a pity party in his household and with his wife and laments and cries himself. Meanwhile, he cleans himself up, goes to the second banquet. Where the queen is asked again, "What is it you like? I will give you anything, anything." And Esther begs for the life of her people, and the king grants her request. But also in doing this, Haman is revealed as having plotted against Esther and the Jews, and is hanged on the gallows, gallows which he built for Mordecai. Haman had this grand plan of how he was going to kill all the Jews, not just Mordecai, but all of them. And then Haman prepared the gallows just to kill Mordecai. I will see him hung. I will see him die. God flipped it all around to kill Haman instead and to get that edict flipped. Now, it's not easy to flip a law around. Once a law is put into place, generally even the king would not change that. In fact, I think in the beginning when the queen was banished, the next day we're told that the king has realized what has happened. I think he wanted—he realized, oh man, I can't believe what I did. I was drunk, I was having this party, I was excited, I commanded the queen to do something she shouldn't have done. And yet, he realized, I can't flip the decree around, I must find a new queen instead. But what if Esther wouldn't have been the courageous person that she was? What if Esther hadn't stepped up and said something? She didn't have the courageous faith to provide this victory in life? What if she would have let her fear stand in the way? What if she had not had the courage to do what she did, what was right? It's easy to imagine. Mordecai, the man who raised her, would have been killed. The Jewish nation would have been wiped out. Possibly Esther would have been killed as well. If Esther doesn't step up here, what are the far-reaching implications? All of God's people would have been killed. We can learn a lot about Esther, from Esther. We can learn how we need to be courageous. And we need to do what God tells us to do. We need to be servant. Jesus came and commanded us to be servants. He died not for the rich or the wealthy, but he died for all of his people. And he died as the example of a servant. It's easy to think of this old story... And thinks there's nothing in it for us, but there's a lot in it for us. You know, people all around the world today are still persecuted. You can go to persecution.com, a website for Voice of the Martyrs, and see how people still are living for God, doing this very thing. They're making life and death decisions each day to live for Him. How are you living? Are you denying your faith like the first part of Esther? Because you're afraid of what might happen to you. Or maybe because you're waiting for a, such a time as this. It's that time. For such a time as this. It's that time. There's a lot in Esther. Like said, it's a lot to summarize. So I'm sorry if it was a lot to focus on. But pay attention to this ending. What do you consider courage in terms of your faith to be like? Today we talked about several potential scary situations. We talked about stunts in your own life. But we talked about the life of Esther. And how she had a choice to go before the king multiple times and to be killed. First to tell them about, the, about how his life was in danger. And then to have this grand plan to go to him and talk to him about how her life was in danger. As a Jew and her people. God protected her through all of it. God gave her provision through all of it. God promoted Mordecai after Haman was killed. God gave her victory through life. Because of her courageous face and standing up in such a time as this. Courage is a tough thing to grow inside of us. In fact, it's probably impossible to face such situations. But regardless of how impossible things may seem, never give up or quit on God. God can turn your situation around if it's His will. For such a time as this, we're never alone. God fights for us and with us in the toughest situations... Deuteronomy 31.6 says this, Be strong and courageous, do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. God never left his people. You see, God's name may not be mentioned in this book, but we see that God still protected his people through the courage of one woman, Esther, and through her doing as God would want her to do in such a time as this if you're honest how courageous is your faith what are you doing in your life that you could not do without god's help maybe you need to take a step of faith and really live a courageous life maybe what you're living what you're doing isn't really courageous at all what do you need to do to live more courageously what do you need to do to rise up let's pray lord we thank you for your word and esther and Lord, I know there's a lot here, and there's so much more. We could have a whole series on Esther. But there's so many things we can focus on to see how we should have courageous faith to protect your people, to protect yourself, but most importantly, to protect your will and your plan. May we use such a time as this. No matter what's going on in our life, we need to think, what have you blessed us with? What have you given us that we can use to glorify you and to accomplish what you want to be done? may we be courageous, faith-filled, and bold, just like Esther in every part of our life. In your holy and powerful name we pray, amen.